Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 452. It's titled, Beyond Stocks, The Allure and Strategy of Credit Investments. There are a handful of investors who have greatly influenced my approach to investing. These are investors whose firms, my former clients, and in some cases myself, have invested with over the years. These investors include Seth Klarman, Jeremy Grantham, Howard Marks, Bill Ackman, and others. Last December, one of those investors, Howard Marks, who is co-founder and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital, released one of his periodic memos titled, Sea Change. Here's a key sentence from the memo. He put it in bold. Marx wrote, as I've written many times about the economy and markets, we never know where we're going, but we ought to know where we are. He's referring to taking the market's temperature. What are investment conditions? What are expected returns, valuations, yields on bonds and other credit instruments? We looked at using the market's temperature, investment conditions, in an episode where we discussed Howard Marks episode 397 on investing in cycles. Another quote from that memo, Sea Change by Marx. And this really gets to the thesis of, of the memo. We've gone from a low return world of 2009 to 2021 to a full return world. And it may become more so in the near term. By full return, we're talking higher returns on cash something we've discussed in the last few episodes, where we can earn over 5% on cash. Marx continues, investors can now potentially get solid returns from credit instruments, meaning they no longer have to rely as heavily on riskier investments to achieve their overall return targets. Credit instruments are investments where the return is primarily driven by a contractual agreement between the investor and the investment sponsor. Think about common stocks. There is no contract that a company that has publicly traded common stocks has to pay dividends, a portion of the profits to the shareholders. No contract, but dividends make up a big component of the return. There's no contractual agreement that these companies have to grow their dividends or earnings, although management has an incentive to do so. And there's definitely no contract as to what investors should pay for those cash flows. Marx wrote in a follow-up memo to Seed Change that he released in May 2023, with equities, the bulk of your return in the short or medium term depends on the behavior of the market. If Mr. Market's in a good mood, as Ben Graham put it, your return will benefit and vice versa. With credit instruments, your return comes overwhelmingly from the contract between you and the borrowers. You give a borrower money up front, they pay you interest every six months, and they give you money back at the end. Then he discusses that if the borrower doesn't pay, the creditors can get ownership of the company through a bankruptcy process. And that gives the borrower an incentive to actually adhere to the contract. The credit instruments that we're going to discuss today are non-investment grade bonds, Leverage loans or senior loans, which are floating rate, non-investment grade bank loans that have been sold into the marketplace, syndicated, and preferred stock. These are three areas that I've invested in for years, and, and in some ways, they fit my temperament. 
My first professional job after graduate school was as a credit analyst. I spent two years analyzing banks, grocery chains, other retail stores, and businesses that wanted to lease an ATM from my employer, NCR, or point-of-sale equipment, or computer equipment. Spent a great deal of time trying to figure out whether these borrowers would adhere to the contract or potentially default. And because of that experience, I just have always been more comfortable investing in areas where there's a contractual agreement to receive cash flow. What I like about non-investment grade bonds, bank loans, and preferred stocks is we're highly confident in the best case scenario. That's receiving that interest income and the dividend income. What we don't know is how much of a haircut we'll get from that best case scenario. If there's a default or in the case of preferred stock, if they stop paying the dividend for a time or whether we'll get the principal back. Most of the time we do, and we have historical statistics to show what percentage of the time do non-investment grade bonds default. And even when they do default or bank loans default, typically there's a bankruptcy procedure and, and there's a recovery of, of 40 to 60% of the original principal amount. Last week in episode 451, we discussed a formula called the Merton share, which can assist us in determining what percentage of our net worth should we invest in riskier assets. And that percentage depends. If the particular investment, let's say stocks, has a higher expected return, but a lower expected risk as measured by volatility, or if our risk aversion factor is lower, meaning we're willing to take on more risk, then we would have a higher allocation to the risky assets. We also pointed out that when risk-free rates are higher, where we can earn more on a risk-free basis, like today, over 5%, then our allocation to riskier assets should be lower. In Marx's memos, he didn't mention the Merton share in terms of figuring out how much to allocate to risky assets, but the underlying principle was there, and he went to an investment committee. He still meets with clients, university endowments and foundations, and he went to a committee, this would have been last, late last year, and said to sell off all your stocks, your big cap stocks, your small cap stocks, U.S. and foreign stocks. Get rid of your private equity, real estate, hedge funds, venture capital. Sell it all, he says, and put it in high-yield bonds that are yielding 9%. Now, in the memo, he admitted that he, he didn't think anybody would do that, but his point was high-yield bonds, which are yielding 9% currently, they're yield to maturity, that's close to the historical return for stocks. But the volatility of high-yield bonds is less than stocks. The standard deviation or range of returns for high-yield bonds is around 12% versus 19% for stocks. The, the maximum drawdown of non-investment grade bonds, worst case, was around a 36% loss versus 60% for stocks. So here we have an asset class where now the expected return is very attractive, the contractual return, before taking into account defaults, and yet it's less volatile. And he was speaking to an endowment that is trying to earn 
enough to meet their spending rate of 5% or so, which means they need to earn 5% plus inflation. And so if they could earn 9%, they would be very happy. If we look then at current yields, and this comes from our monthly investment conditions and strategy report that we do at Money for the Rest of Us Plus, U.S. corporate high-yield bonds, yield to worst, is, is 9%. U.S. bank loans, leverage loans, they're yielding 9.6%. And those attractive yields have been increasing as the Federal Reserve has been raising its policy rate. But they've done very well. If I look at my portfolio over the last 18 months, the best performers have been a, a leverage loan closed-end fund that I own, DSU. It's returned 10% annualized. And a, another closed-end fund, MCI, Bearings Corporate Investor, that invests in private debt, but non-investment-grade debt, it's returned 15% annualized. That's compared to negative 6% for the overall bond market, as represented by the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. So here's two credit strategies, bond-like strategies that have trounced the overall bond market. Now, Partly, it's because these are closed-in funds that were selling at a discount, and that discount has narrowed a little bit, but they also have very attractive yields of over 9%. Preferred stock is the other credit investment. It has elements of bonds, but also of stocks. It's a hybrid-type investment. It's like a bond in, in that there is an, a contractual agreement to pay a specified dividend rate. Just like most bonds have a specified interest rate, preferred stock says they'll pay a certain dividend amount. And that dividend is generally as a percent of its offering price, which is typically $25, that dividend yields around 5% to 7%. And so it pays a specific dividend. And then like bonds, if interest rates go up and the price a preferred stock goes down, then the dividend yield based on the market price goes higher. And so last week, I added more money to one of the preferred stock issues I own, and it's yielding 8.6% because its price have fallen. Preferred stock is, is like bonds in that many issues get a credit rating from a credit rating agency that looks at the soundness of the issue, the ability of the company to meet the dividend. And so if we look at an ETF like the iShares Preferred Stock ETF, about 80% of its holdings have a credit rating. 50% are rated triple B or better, with most of this being triple B, which means it's investment grade, but there's 27% rated double B. So in, in some ways, they're, they're sort of a mix between investment grade and non-investment grade bonds. Preferred stocks are like bonds in, in that many can be called early. They can re be redeemed early at the offering price, which is typically what's known as the liquidation value. With interest rates going up, many of those preferred stocks have fallen below that liquidation value. And so the odds of being called early, because they, they would need to pay the $25 per share, that's less. And so we can see that many preferred stocks are currently selling for a discount to the liquidation value, which means their yields are higher than their coupon rate. In, in many cases, 7 8% or higher. 
Preferred stocks, though, are like equity or like common stocks in that it's equity capital on the balance sheet. It's not debt. And so some corporations like to issue preferred stock areas such as banks, utilities, where there's some ratios they have to meet or some limits as to the amount of leverage they can have. So by issuing preferred stock, they can still raise capital, but it's not counted against them as as having leverage, which can help their credit rating. And, And as a result, these more regulated industries like banks and utilities tend to be the biggest issuers of preferred stocks. The iShares Preferred Stock ETF has 74% in financial institutions and another 10% in utilities. The rest are industrial-type companies or, or regular businesses. So if I look at my preferred stock issues that I own, I own individual ones. I don't have any exposure to, to banks or utilities. My preferred stocks were issued by closed-end funds, Gabelli Asset Management, a closed-end fund uses leverage, and, and as a result, they borrow money, but they can also issue preferred stock. And then I also have some preferred stock issues from mortgage REITs, which is a type of company that invests in mortgage-backed securities on a leveraged basis, so they'll borrow money, loans, but they'll also issue preferred stock. So preferred stock's not debt, part of the equity stack. It's junior to debt. So if the company defaults, the debt holders, if in the case of a workout where there is some recovery, they'll recover before the preferred stocks holders get any type of payment. Preferred stocks are, are stock like in that the dividend could be suspended. If a borrower of, of debt at someone that issued high yield bonds, if they stop paying interest, that's a default. But a preferred stock issuer can stop payment of the dividend for a time, and then start again without incurring a a default. Now, there's a type of preferred stock called cumulative preferred stock, and and those are what I prefer. About 46% of the preferred stock universe are cumulative. So if the company suspends the dividend, they have to make up that dividend, catch up before they can start paying dividends to the common stockholders. And so that's an additional assurity that we get as preferred stockholders. So I prefer cumulative preferred stock. Turns out many of the non-cumulative preferred stock issuers are by banks. And again, this gets more to kind of regulations. The other thing with preferred stock is that there's many different types. Some, the dividend can change. And so it might be fixed for a time and then it could change to variable. And then there's this tax advantage to preferred stocks. As holders of preferred stocks, we can get qualified dividend income, which means our U.S. tax rate could actually be lower, about 20%, versus if you're in a higher marginal income tax bracket, we're potentially paying over 30% on interest income. With preferred stock, because it is a dividend, an equity dividend, the tax rates are lower. But it is a stock. It's not common stock, but it it can sell off if the common stock is selling off. Typically, there's some correlation between that. We can see preferred stocks have sold off as interest rates have risen, just like with bonds, and that has increased the, the current yield. But they can also sell off in market stress. When the pandemic hit, or the, the, the realization of how severe the pandemic was in March 2020, that preferred stock ETF, PFFs, it sold off 29%. 
I had individual issues that sold off 45%. So we can see some drawdowns. In 2022, with interest rates rising, long-term bonds, as represented by the TLT, iShares 20-Year Bond ETF, declined 31%. Preferred stocks declined 18%, as represented by PFF. And the Spider Bloomberg High Yield Bond ETF declined 12% in 2022. So preferred stock is a hybrid. So while there is a contract to pay that dividend, that dividend can be suspended. And over time, about 6% of preferred stocks see their dividend suspended across the universe on average in any given year. But again, if it's a cumulative position, then it can be made up. And so the actual default rate in terms of bankruptcy is much lower than that. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. So when we think about credit instruments, non-investment grade bonds, leveraged loans, and preferred stock, we get that top line best case yield, and then there is the potential for default or dividend suspension, which can reduce that top line yield. I've mentioned the 6% of preferred stocks have seen some type of suspension of their dividend over time. If we look at non-investment grade bonds, Howard Marks in his memo pointed out that the average high yield default rate, the annual default rate between 1978 and 2009 was 3.6%. But since then, it's been 
2.1%, so from 2009 through 2022, so much lower than that. What we assume on Money for the Restless Plus, because we provide expected returns, we assume annual default rates of 4%. And given there's about a 40% recovery, that can reduce the annual return for non-investment grade bonds by about 2.4 percentage points per year. So if we're starting out with a 9% yield to maturity and we back out 2.4%, that's a 6.6% expected return for non-investment grade bonds. We can do a similar analysis for leveraged loans or bank loans. They're yielding 9.6% right now. We assume a 5% default rate for bank loans, which is, is fairly reasonable. Historically, if we look at bank loans, the, the default rate's been less than 2% per year since 2009, but it, it was 12% in 2009 and 4.5%. In, in 2020 and then the other years, because it, it is kind of spiky. And that's when the economy goes bad, that's when you see defaults increase. We're being fairly conservative, assuming 5% default, 60% recovery. And so that reduces the annual return by 1.6%. And if we're starting with the yield of 9.6%, that's an 8% expected return for bank loans. That's attractive. I mentioned the drawdown for high-yield bonds, worst case, maximum drawdown has been about 36%, lower risk than stocks with a standard deviation of around 11 or 12. Bank loans, because their yields are tied to short-term interest rates, so it's an additional yield above the risk-free rate, they're not as sensitive to changing rates. And as a result, their standard deviation is much less, the volatility, about 6.5%. So half that of non-investment grade bonds. And the maximum drawdown historically has only been 24%. So it's, it's a fairly lower risk strategy in terms of volatility, but potentially higher defaults, but it also has a higher yield right now. In looking at my portfolio, I have around 7% of my net worth in high yield bonds and bank loans, and that includes collateralized loan obligations. And, and we discussed bank loans and collateralized loan obligations in great detail in episode 423 of the podcast. So I encourage you to check that out. So I, I have exposure there, and I have around 6% in preferred stocks. It's an area of the market I'm, I'm looking to increase, but there's sort of a caveat. When we talk about the attractiveness of credit instruments, there's two things we don't know. Will there be a recession? During recessions, we typically see the spread or incremental yield of non-investment grade bonds and bank loans widen out because there's more worry about default risk. And if we look at the spreads now for non-investment grade bonds, they're, they're just slightly below average. So even though we're getting a 9% yield, the actual spread above 10-year treasuries is 4.4% versus the average going back to 1983 of 4.9%. And so we're not getting above average spreads right now. And the best time to invest in high-yield bonds is when spreads are very, very wide and the economy is improving. Currently, the economy is not improving. Economic trends are red in our monthly investment conditions report based on leading economic indicators. We haven't had a recession yet, but there's reason for some caution 
recognizing, though, over the, the long term, if this is a more normal environment, a 9% yield is attractive for high-yield bonds and 9.6% for bank loans. We just don't know how much that will be reduced by the defaults if we enter into a recession. And so my approach has been to make incremental changes as I've kept some exposure or a pulled back risk in, on credit instruments back in the summer of 21 and then slowly added some back. How do we invest in these areas of the market of credit instruments? What are the ways to do that? Well, the first way is, is passively, using a passive index fund or ETF. And the idea is, is that by having hundreds, if not over a thousand positions, we'll earn the yield to maturity and it will re- be reduced by the average default rate. So we won't get disproportionately hit by the default of one particular issue. So something like the Invesco Senior Loan ETF, BKLN, is an ETF that's passively managed, effectively a diversified mix of bank loans. The iShares iBox High Yield Corporate Bond ETF, HYG, is a way to passively get exposure to high yield bonds. The iShares Preferred Stock ETF, PFF, is a way to get diversified exposure to preferred stocks. So that's the first way, passive ETF. The second way would be an actively managed approach. There are active mutual funds and ETFs in all of those areas. There, we're relying on a management team to make portfolio decisions as to which bank loan to purchase, which high-yield bond to purchase, or which preferred stock to purchase. And the idea is that the default rates will be lower than the overall market because they're doing additional credit research. Now, they could be higher if they happen to get one of their positions or several of them default, but we're relying on professionals to make the security selection. Now, it can be a, a mutual fund or it can be an ETF. So a firm that I've invested with for several decades now, I don't currently have exposure, is Virtu Sykes. And they have the Virtu Sykes Senior Loan ETF, tickers SEIX, and it has an SEC yield of 9.6%. And hopefully the default rates will be below average and will earn most of that. So that's an example. In our model portfolio examples, and in my portfolio, we own the Double Line Flexible Income Fund, DFLEX. It has exposure to bank loans and also high-yield bonds and is actively managing a portfolio. It has some other segments of the market, but it has an SEC yield of 7.8%. So this is a very diversified, actively managed approach to get exposure to credit instruments. And, and that's how we've gone about it in our model portfolio examples. So the second approach then is actively managed. The third approach is to purchase individual securities. I've done this in my portfolio, but not for bank loans or for high-yield bonds. That I'm not comfortable doing. Now, because I have a, a credit research background, I'm comfortable going through the balance sheet, income statement, the cash flow statement, more so for preferred stocks, because I just want to make sure there's enough cash flow to meet the preferred stock dividend. And so unlike trying to do that analysis, the fundamental analysis in, in, in analyzing the common stock, there we're trying to figure out, is the market wrong? Is the consensus expectation for the forward prospects of that company in terms of earnings and dividends wrong to where the, the common stock is too cheap? That's much more difficult to do than analyzing those same financial statements 
is there sufficient cash flow and enough of a buffer to meet the preferred stock dividend? And that's something I'm more comfortable doing. And that's why I've owned individual preferred stocks in the mortgage REIT area, the closed-end funds, and then I have one farm REIT. But I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that for senior loans and high-yield bonds, and, and really even for most preferred stock issues. So I, I've chosen my preferred stock, individual holdings, very carefully because they're, they're in areas where I just, I just don't see a default. It could happen. The final way then to invest in these areas is closed-end funds. Closed-end funds differ from an open-end mutual fund in that they can trade throughout the day on a stock exchange like an ETF, but there's a a set amount of shares. So with an open-end mutual fund, the fund sponsor is creating and redeeming new shares every day. So the market price of the mutual fund, open-end mutual fund, always equals the net asset value which is the value of all the assets divided by the shares outstanding. A closed-end fund can see its market price differ from the net asset value because it trades throughout the the day and the sponsor isn't creating new shares. And so closed-end funds are are attractive because you can buy them at a discount. But they're also more volatile than open-end mutual funds because most closed-end funds use leverage in order to magnify the returns. And the fees are higher. I'll link to in the show notes a guide we have on closed-end funds. We also have a course that I'll link to. And then there's a lot of complications with closed-end funds, but they're pretty fascinating vehicles. But those are the four ways to invest in these credit instruments. ETFs and index funds to get the diversification. Actively managed mutual funds and ETFs. Individual holdings, at least for preferred stocks. And closed-end funds. There's always trade-offs, though. I agree with Howard Marks that now credit is attractive in terms of the absolute yield, especially if we're in a more normal environment where these yields will stay uh, this high. We don't know what the haircut will be due to defaults, and we can manage that by using an actively managed fund or ETF. We also don't know to what extent interest rates could go higher, especially spreads for high-yield bonds or bank loans if we get into a recession scenario. And so the approach that I'm most comfortable with, not knowing what the future will be, is to make incremental changes and dollar cost average to increase our exposure. But it is an unusual period where we can earn returns equal to stocks, common stocks, but by taking less risk. And and that is attractive to me and something I'm continuing to look at in my portfolio, in the models on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, as we look at the market's temperature. Where do we stand today to help us make decisions for the future? That's episode 452. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter.
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.